0: Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm interviewing Erica Johansson, the author of The Queen of the Tearling, her best-selling debut novel, and the opener to a trilogy that at first appears to be set in the Middle Ages. Erica and I will explain during the interview why that appearance is deceptive, and what's really going on in the Tearling kingdom. But for the moment, let me begin with Chapter 1. The Tenth Horse, The Glen Queen, Kelsey Raleigh Glynn, 7th Queen of the Tearling, also known as the Marked Queen, fostered by Carlin and Bartholomew, Barty the Good, Glynn. Mother, Queen Alyssa Raleigh. Father, unknown. See Appendix 11 for Speculation. The Early History of the Tearling, as told by Merwinian. Kelsey Glynn sat very still, watching the troop approach her homestead. The men rode as a military company with outliers on the corners, all dressed in the grey of the Tearling Royal Guard rider's cloaks swayed as they rode, revealing their costly weapons, swords and short knives, all of them of mortmain steel. One man even had a mace. Kelsey could see its spiked head protruding from his saddle. The sullen way they guided their horses toward the cottage made things very clear they didn't want to be here. Kelsey sat cloaked and hooded in the fork of a tree some 30 feet from her front door. She was dressed in deep green from her hood down to her pine-colored boots. A sapphire dangled from a pure silver chain around her neck. This jewel had an annoying habit of popping out of Kelsey's shirt minutes after she had tucked it in, which seemed fitting. For today, the sapphire was the source of her trouble. Nine men, ten horses. And now, please join me in welcoming Erica Johansson. Hi, hey, Erica. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Hello. Uh, so as not to confuse people, uh, let me mention right away that the Queen of the Tearling is set in the 24th century uh, so and not the 14th. So strictly speaking, it's a bit of a stretch for new books in historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's good to expand the horizons. And this book offers us a chance to talk about societies and how they advance and revert, as well as where our own society may be heading. Uh, But before we get to all of that, uh, let me start out, as I usually do, by asking you how you became a novelist. Uh, Had you always intended to write fiction?
1: Um, I always liked to write fiction, but there was a huge chunk of my life during which I was fairly sure that I wasn't good enough at it to do it for a living. And so during that time, I decided to become a lawyer instead. So um, I actually ended up writing this, Queen of the Tearling. I started it in law school and then wrote it over the next four years while I became a lawyer. And uh, so, yeah, I, <laughs> for a long time, I didn't plan to write fiction, not for a living anyway, but I've always written since I was a little kid.
0: So you did it entirely alone? You didn't um you didn't take English in college or work with other writers or
1: anything? Like oh, that? well, I mean I went to the I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, but that's pretty much where I figured out that I didn't think I was good enough. Um and that I would never get published. So I've, t- I've taken a lot of fiction writing classes and I I was a creative writing and English major with a creative writing emphasis, but I just it was always something I loved to do and I assumed it would always be a hobby.
0: Ah. Um so. So, are you still a lawyer, or are you now writing full-time? Uh,
1: technically, I'm a lawyer, though I'm inactive now. I don't practice. Um, but, no, now I have <laughs> fortunately get to write full-time, which is about the greatest thing in the world.
0: So, um, how did you come up with a story that became the Queen of the Tierlings?
1: Um, actually, I just I had a dream one night. It's the silliest and saddest way to think up a idea for a story, but it's the truth. Um, I had a dream about ships going over a horizon, and then a few days later, I saw Senator Obama on television for the first time, and at that time, I didn't even know who he was. This was in 2007, and I was so impressed with him that I just started thinking, wouldn't it be nice to be able to write a story about an idealistic leader who didn't face the nightmare that idealists face in America? You know, I, I wanted to create a different world where it was perhaps a little bit easier to practice idealism.
0: And now it's a trilogy. Did, did you always intend it to be a trilogy? Uh, when I
1: started, I thought it was going to be two books, only because I was going to talk about the backstory of the world in exposition. You know, <laughs> seems to be the modern practice these days for any book set in a dystopia of any kind to just take eight pages out of the first chapter and tell you all about the world. You know, give you history, give you backstory. And I've never liked that. I find it kind of sloppy and lazy, and so I decided very early on that I wanted to talk about the backstory of my world and tell it as a story, and at that point it became a trilogy because I knew I would need an extra book to do it right. That makes lots of sense.
0: So the central character of your story is Kelsey, uh, who has just had her 19th birthday when we meet her in Chapter 1. Tell us who she is and what the significance is of the 10th horse.
1: Uh, Kelsey has been raised all of her life, almost since she was about one year old, um, pretty much in exile. She's raised by two older people who agreed to take the job on, and she's never been able to interact with other children. All she, know, all she basically knows is that she's going to be a queen one day, and her entire upbringing has been directed toward making her a good queen. And while that makes her, that makes her extremely well-educated, and she has a great historical perspective, She's a little bit socially inept. I mean, she's probably not as socially inept as most kids would be in that situation. But hey, I'm the author. <laughs> and, um, she just she basically has never related to anyone her own age. Only these two caretakers all of her life. So the tenth horse is the horse that a bunch of guards are bringing to take her back to her family's ancestral castle, um, so she can take up the reins of being a queen at age 19. And she is in some ways amazingly well prepared for it and in other ways not prepared at all. She
0: has a refreshingly practical outlook on life for a novel heroine. I mean, she's of royal blood, as you mentioned. Um, Mm -hmm. She has magic powers, or at least a magic jewel. But in many ways, she's not exceptional. She's plain. She's a little bit overweight. She has to master all kinds of skills. Uh, She's much more focused on survival than romance, which I really liked. Um, (laughs) This was a deliberate choice on your part, I understand.
1: Yes. Goodness, yes. Um, I personally, one of the reasons I'm writing fantasy now, but I almost never read fantasy. I've read stunningly few, probably fewer than 30 fantasy books in my entire life. Um, and one of the big reasons is that I like to read about heroines. And it seems like most of the women in fantasy are either there to be a love interest or there to be really good with a sword. And there's no in between. There's no cerebral heroine in fantasy most of the time. I mean, there are exceptions. But, you know, there just aren't enough of them. And I decided really early on that I wanted her to be to be a hero. But her heroism has nothing to do with being good at fighting or, you know, being incredibly strong. It's a very intellectual sort of heroism. And I was committed to that. And part of that was to keep her from being part of some sort of love story, because honestly, most of the time, unless unless a love story is very organic to the story, which there's no planning that either it works or it doesn't. Um, it seems to diminish heroines especially when they're reduced to being a love interest and it just it doesn't allow them the freedom of movement as characters that I would like to see in most women in fiction and so anyway I decided very early on that she was going to have to focus on being a queen which I find realistic I'd be astounded if someone who is really making an honest attempt to rule a country would have the time <laughs> to have any romance in her life I mean she's got to worry about not getting killed and not getting her people killed first. And it seemed to me like in the early going especially, that would take up the bulk of her time. I thought a romance would be unrealistic even. But try to tell that to the reader who wants a romance.
0: Well, I think that's a good point. And actually, in historically, I mean, I know that your world is not the Middle Ages, but historically, queens don't just go out and get
1: involved with some guy. I mean, they have to... Well, if they do, they have to do it on the fly. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's never, but it's never, it never decides the fate of kingdoms. And just so, in so many books with female protagonists, I find that the love story literally shoves everything else out of the way. Even if the novel is not a romance per se, I mean, the big focus is on the love story. And I just find that most women, realistic women, they have to worry about other things. I mean, you know, you got to pay the rent, <laughs> you know, you got to work at your job if you have one, you know, there's just so many other things that a practical woman sees as more important than throwing everything to the side for a love story. And that incredible trend lately, I see it, boy, in a lot of books I read is just to forget about all the practical details that women face every day in, the, in, in favor of a romance. And I just, I got so tired of it that I decided really early on that that wasn't going to be my book.
0: So So as you mentioned, Kelsey needs to focus on survival because uh, from the moment she leaves the cabin where she's been fostered since babyhood, she's in danger. And in fact, she's been in danger even before that, but she wasn't probably as aware of it. Tell us about some of the threats that she encounters early on in the book, uh, both before she even reaches the keep and um, then immediately afterwards.
1: Sure. Well, people have been trying to kill Kelsey pretty much since she was born. (laughs) Um, she's not, her family, her family historically were not popular rulers and lots of people would have liked to get rid of them and see someone else on the throne. Um, The further issue is that there's a neighboring kingdom called Mortmain um, and they invaded the Tierlings some years ago and as, as a reader will find out did not quite complete that invasion. And But the queen of that country has never really wanted to see Kelsey ascend to the throne, mostly because she's an unknown. Um, she's been raised in exile. No one knew where she was. No one knew what she was like, and no one could get a look at her. And because of that, she's a figure of great uncertainty. And so there are plenty of people still, even now that she's 19, who don't want to see her make it on the throne. So people are hunting her, trying to kill her. Once she gets on the throne, she has to worry about treachery. You know, she's in an entire castle full of people who are theoretically her servants, but everyone has their own agenda in the cheerling. That's one thing I decided very early early on about these characters. Very few of them are designed to be plot contrivances. Um, Everyone really has their own life and their own reasons for doing what they do, and there are a lot of people who don't want to see Kelsey rule this kingdom.
0: Yes, I think characters really have to. If they, you know, characters are uh, some, I've, forgotten now where I read this, but it's a great quote, you know, every character is the center of his own story. Yeah. So if they don't have something clear that they want, I mean, it can be very simple if they're a secondary or tertiary character, but they, they need to have something they want, otherwise they, they don't really have a purpose.
1: Sure. I, well, I often keep my character, the secondary characters, their motives are often mysterious to the reader on purpose, but they definitely have them, and that was, that's what I try to do is that even if I'm not willing to tell the reader What's motivating a character at any given time? It should be clear that they have an agenda. So, almost all of my secondary characters, I flatter myself, have that have that vibe. But <laughs> almost no one is, you know, for Kelsey to help Kelsey out of the goodness of their heart. Very few of those.
0: No, I, I got that impression that very few of them were, and very <laughs> you know, few of, of them are upfront about what they want, which is, I think, accurate. Um, it's it's accurate in any court, but especially in in uh, um, a period that is, you know, in the Middle Ages, people were constantly, yeah. Uh, sure. Look, he and I, well, I mean, people always are keeping the think, eye out for the main chance, really.
1: You know, after the Middle Ages came the Enlightenment in our history. And one of the problems with the tierling is that they've reverted from enlightenment and there's been nothing to replace it. <laughs> so it's it's there's not at all, there's not any shame in acting completely for yourself in the tierling. So.
0: That's a great way of putting it. So one of the things I noticed, um, it was quite coincidental. I've been reading um, Jared Diamond's The World Until Yesterday as a way of connecting to my own characters. And I, I haven't gotten very far, but that's not his fault. Um, it's, but, I didn't get very far through Jared Diamond either. No. <laughs> Maybe it is his fault. I hope he's not listening. <laughs> anyway, one of the first points he makes is that um, it's actually quite unusual to... Think of the world in global terms, if, if you're thinking in terms of history, and that the situation that you portray between Mortmain and the tierling is actually quite typical, that your neighbors are the ones that you want to kill because they're the ones who are sharing your space, you know? Sure, sure. And so you, you mentioned that Mortmain inv- invaded the tierling, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the kingdoms themselves as they're portrayed in this book. I'm not asking you to go further into the series, but just as they are here, and a little bit about the Red Queen of Mortmain.
1: Sure. Um, Mortmain borders the Tierling on the east, and um, Mortmain essentially, again, I have to be very careful what I reveal here, so I'm sorry if this sounds cryptic. It's not intentional. Um, Mortmain is essentially an amalgamation of many settlers from European nations. So it's kind of a strange. They speak a language that looks very much like French, they have a culture that's often influenced by Germany. Um, all, all other, there's some Italian running around in there. You know, it's just, it's a very, it's, it's a big amalgam of remnants of Europe, essentially. And the Red Queen is um, a sorceress who came to this kingdom. The reader doesn't know how yet, again, because I haven't told them. Um, <laughs> who came to this kingdom almost a century ago and took it over pretty much by force of will. And so she, she's painted as a villain. Most people think, seem to think she's a villain when I read reviews, but that's not how I intended her. She's a much more complex character than that, and I'm kind of revealing her layer by layer in each book for the reader. But I suppose if you're talking about conflict over resources, <laughs> in a Jared Diamond sense, she is very much the antagonist because her kingdom is never satisfied and it wants more. And therefore, having a small neighboring kingdom like the Tierling that has a couple of useful resources like oak, you know, like lumber, is almost intolerable to her to just leave that kingdom alone. <laughs> so I don't, I don't intend her to be evil, and I don't think by the end of the trilogy, most people will think she actually is. But, you know, she is this threat that looms very large over the Tierling on its eastern border. Um, to the south of the Tierling, we have a kingdom called Kadare that's, Uh, that I'm going to have to kind of take a moratorium on. It's a a desert kingdom. Um, It's ruled by a very patriarchal society. And that's pretty much about all the reader knows about it right now. And I'm sorry I have to keep it that way.
0: That's fine. I I had the impression, maybe it's not accurate, but I had the impression that Mortmain is a little more industrial. Maybe that's not quite the
1: right word, but they have coal and they have They are. Well, they're gifted with natural riches is I think how I'd put it. I don't think none of these nations are particularly industrialized. Uh, Mortmain comes closest. Um, This whole this entire culture basically has repudiated technology. And they've all come from a common ancestry that basically left technology behind on purpose. And so that's why nothing has really re-evolved in the way we would naturally expect it to over 300 years. Um, so anyway, no, Kadir. I would just say they have a lot of riches in the ground, but are not necessarily really industrialized in any way.
0: Okay, so they're not, they're not actually mining or
1: anything, they're just... They're mining, but if they're mining, they're doing it by hand. I see. Okay. Or with, you know, <laughs> with, with the old-fashioned, say, rope and pulley device, not right. so much machinery.
0: Okay, got it. Um. So one thing that the another thing actually that the world of the cheerling has in common with the Middle Ages is its extreme social stratification. And I as I understand one reason that you wrote these novels was in part in response to the increasing social stratification in the United States.
1: Someone found one of my interviews. Oh, I'm sorry,
0: just having
1: some fun there. <laughs> um, yes. They sent um, it
0: to me along with the book. <laughs>
1: Um, I I am appalled, honestly, at what's becoming more and more okay every day in the United States in terms of just screwing over your neighbor to enrich yourself. I'm getting extremely tired of it, and because I have nothing but writing, I'm not a politician, I can barely talk to people, I have no way to express that except through a story. So I can't help keeping my... I definitely can't help keeping my politics out of my stories. It's never happened before. It's never going to happen. So I just, you know, if I'm creating a kingdom, I really wanted to explore... I mean, the tierling is different from our world, but it's not that different. And I wanted to explore what the long-term effects of serious endemic inequality would look like by the end of our species, you know, or by approaching the end of our species. And it's just not good. So...
0: (laughs) So tell us a little bit about the social uh, system in uh, the tierling.
1: The tierling has essentially reverted to serfdom. Um, and I mean that in the, full, in the exact way the Middle Ages had serfdom. Um, farmer, you know, Poor tenant farmers, and they're not really tenants because they're essentially indentured servants, work patches of land which they're allowed to live on, And then have to give all the profits to the noble who owns the entire patch of land. I mean, it's basically serfdom as I learned it in fourth grade. You know, it's reverted exactly to that. And because of that, you have a humongous underclass that is in no way ever able to save anything or to buy land for themselves or do much more than subsist barely. Everyone in the, almost everyone in the tierling is starving. Um, and you have an enormous nobility class that is basically you know, it would, look, it would look like a pretty sad lifestyle to us at this point in time, but for the tierling, they're living a, very much the high life. And there's just simply no concern. There's a huge disconnect between these two classes in that no one in the nobility class is looking down the road to see what happens when a huge underclass starves for long enough. No one is thinking about it or worrying about it or wondering if it's right or wrong. It simply is. I mean, the tierling is a pretty savage country that way. And I mean, the two really has an excuse. <laughs> they, they have reverted to, you know, to pretty much our more primal ancestors. But we don't really have that excuse, especially in America or any industrialized nation, that you just don't have to look around you and pay attention to what other people are going through.
0: I also get the impression that these nobles don't really do anything, right? I mean, they're not like the traditional medieval yeah, aristocrats they're, they're who they're fight.
1: landlords, basically. Mm-hmm. And they don't even have the noblesse oblige, you know, the, the idea that they used to say nobles used to at some point have courts, you know, and address, address injustices or adjudicate disputes between their tenants. That used to happen sometimes. And even that was better than what's going on here, which is that the noble literally does nothing but collect money. Yeah.
0: And one of the things that gets Kelsey in trouble early enough in the book that I feel comfortable asking you about it is that she, as so almost as soon as she gets to the keep, which is where the royal family lives, she um, discovers that her people are um, shipping slaves. They're not trading slaves, but they are shipping their own people as slaves to Mortme. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that sets off the chain of events, which I assume goes through all three books, but certainly yeah. through this book. I'm not going to ask you to talk about the later events, but uh, why are they shipping slaves, and how, how does this fit into their larger picture of, of uh, social structure?
1: <laughs> well, essentially, as, as, as kingdoms go in this new world I've created, the Tierling is a poor kingdom. And as I said, they were briefly invaded years ago, and the way that they kind of eventually bought the invader off was to offer people. And while that may seem extreme and almost grotesque, I don't really think it is anymore. Again, our current world, we're seeing stuff nearly as bad going on. And so anyway, it's, it's essentially a way to ward off disaster by trading your own humanity. So that's pretty much the idea. They've been shipping these slaves for about 17 years when Kelsey shows up at the keep. And uh, she just can't stand it. <laughs>
0: And what does white man do with
1: the slaves when he gets them? Uh, most of them are used for labor, um, essentially, some for sex, um, some for some more grotesque things, which I can't reveal at this moment. <laughs> That's okay, explored a little bit in later books. Um, but essentially what slaves have always been used for in human history, you know, there's some pretty standard uses. Um, it's to do the labor that you don't want to do yourself. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's basically to to provide a better life for everyone in Mortmain because everyone in Mortmain benefits from having a bunch of free labor come into the country. You know, their standard of living is significantly higher than the tierlings because of that. As again, as it's always been in history.
0: So it's, it's it's keeping the subjects of Mortmain happy, basically.
1: Yes, very much. There's a, the entire Mort economy basically runs on slaves. And in the second book, the reader will see that when the slave shipment stops, uh, it's basically the entire world stops spinning in Mortmain.
0: Um, another medieval-like feature is the role of the church. So, um, and it's it's a very central church. Uh, it's a single church, um, as the Catholic Church was in medieval Europe. But mm-hmm. Kelsey does not accept it. Why, why does she refuse to accept it?
1: It's mostly her upbringing, which I think is usually the reason. You know, either you see something terrible, or you're just raised into what you become. And Kel- for Kelsey, she was raised mostly mostly by her foster mother and her foster mother is an atheist and there's a lot of skepticism and suspicion of the Bible in the cottage where Kelsey grew up and it's basically just transferred directly to her Um, so she starts off as an atheist and then what she sees when she actually comes back out of exile doesn't really convince her that anything about that is wrong (laughs) she she feels her atheism is well-founded let's say
0: Is the church also oppressing the poor? I I would assume they would be.
1: Um, Well, the church essentially is just one more noble in the tierling. I mean, they are are doing what throughout, say, the medieval period, the church essentially did, which was to basically (laughs) guilt the entire populace into tithing. I mean, so, yes, I would say it's a different form of oppression, but it's oppression all the same. Um, Holding the threat of hell over the entire kingdom's head in order to enrich itself. And it does love its money. So, yes, I would call it an oppressive church.
0: One thing it doesn't seem to do too much of is, um, how should we put this, education? Um, (laughs) The uh, production of books. I mean, this was one of the great contributions of the medieval church was that it it retained knowledge even when it suppressed the dissemination of that knowledge uh, by copying books. There is one character in in your book, in the Queen of the Tierling, who does actually value uh, books. And, of mm-hmm. course, Kelsey's mother, uh, st- I'm sorry, foster mother, does value books. But mm-hmm. I get the impression that they have, that the society as a whole has not only given up on technology, but it's also pretty much abandoned uh, literature.
1: The, I think this is, you know, I may be revealing my own story here, but there's some allusion to the fact that in the period when the first settlers arrived at this place, They had to scramble to survive. And the sad thing is that when humanity is really in a struggle for actual survival, one of the first things to usually go is education. And whether that's justifiable or not, I I wish it wasn't that way. I can't say I wouldn't behave in the same way, though I would hope not. Um, But anyway, the point is, this kingdom for 300 years, it's been a fight for survival and not to starve most of the time. So it's understandable that only a few individuals who really, really, really cared about books would have chosen to keep them and protect them. And so, yes, education has largely just gone by the board because no one valued it.
0: So I don't know if this is um, part of the answer, but you have this very powerful church. You have an absence of books and education. Um, Another feature in the story, which is interesting, but it also is a little bit out of sync with the focus on practicality, is magic, which does play a role in the series. You mentioned the Red Queen, who is a sorceress, but magic also plays a role in Kelsey's Mm -hmm. assumption of the throne. Um, How do you see magic as a factor in the story, and why did you choose to include it?
1: I chose to include, well, the first thing you'll notice, especially with Kelsey, is that most of the magic she encounters is foisted on her. She doesn't go seeking it. It's not a normal part of life in the tier length. They're suspicious people, by and large, but they don't have men- much magic in front of their eyes every day. The only reason Kelsey kind of gets involved with it is because it's, you know, it's impossible for her to ignore, and she can't leave it alone. Um, I basically I get extremely annoyed in books when characters... I read a lot of horror. Horror is my favorite genre. And I get very annoyed when characters will see things with their own eyes and then try to not deny them. So one of the first aspects of Kelsey's character that I wanted to z- develop is that being a practical person, when confronted with evidence of magic, she will not just turn around and start looking for any alternate explanation and go create, you know, and spend pages and pages trying to do that. She sees magic, she encounters it, and she starts to wonder how she can use it, as any practical person would when they run into a tool that seems like it might be useful. Um, I just, I wanted it to be a very pragmatic kind of magic, though, in that she doesn't understand how it works no one does. She can't really use it consistently because she has no idea how it works. And it's only really an inter- intermittent force in the story. I mean, I wanted to have magic in this kingdom, mostly because I realized pretty early on I was essentially writing a fantasy novel, and it would be a sad fantasy world without magic. But I never intended it to be central to the story or to be anything except perhaps a deus ex us from time to time. Um, it, it does influence Kelsey's life, but it's just not the Tearling, I think, again, I flatter myself. Maybe readers would say different. The Tierling doesn't really feel like a magic kingdom, per se. There are no creatures running around. There are, you know, there's not magic every day on the streets. I mean, I just, I intended it more as kind of a furnishing of the story rather than any sort of central theme or central to the plot. At
0: least in the Tearling, it seems to be very much linked to Kelsey's royal status. Is, is that accurate And in-
1: yeah, this magic um, the reader will find it out down the road is not wholly dependent, but heavily dependent on bloodline. And so, you know, again, that's about all I can say about it right now. Though, sorry.
0: <laughs> okay, try. can we talk a little bit about uh, the mace and the fetch then? Uh, sure. These are two characters who are known mostly by nicknames, although the mace does have a name, Lazarus, which Kelsey uh, insists on using. Um, sure. What is their role in this in this story and Uh, Tell us a little bit
1: about them. Um, The Mace is the captain of Kelsey's Guard, which there's a Queen's Guard in this kingdom that functions essentially like the American Secret Service in that their entire role is simply to guard the ruler and it doesn't matter who the ruler is. um, They transition from ruler to ruler and it's just a job job that they're very committed to. Um, So the Mace is the captain of Kelsey's Guard and he is a man of mystery and a half. Um, his story as well I plan to tell someday. So I'm, <laughs> I have revealed very little about him on purpose other than that you know that he had a terrible past of some kind and it's turned him into a very laconic and yet extremely efficient killer. And I, <laughs> the truth, the God's honest truth is probably the reason I came up with that character is that I love those characters. I love, <laughs> I love the terrible persons that had a terrible past and yet you can see the seeds of redemption in them from time to time. So he's a character I plan to develop hugely as the series goes on. Um, the Fetch, on the other hand, is essentially this world's answer to Robin Hood. Close. He doesn't, he doesn't distribute the money to the poor. He's keeping it for a rather nefarious purpose, probably. But he is a rogue. He's the rogue in the rogue's gallery. He is the ultimate rogue in that he's a thief. Um, he's an outlaw. He's, you know, rather dashing <laughs> as, as men go in these kind of stories um he's not he's not so much intended kelsey develops a crush on him immediately the very minute she sees him which i usually would hate abhor that kind of thing in a book and yet having been a teenage girl i remember it happening and so i didn't think it was totally beyond the bounds of reality that she would just see him and just fall for him smack like that um so anyway he is um, kind of a, I don't know what to call him in this story. He appears and disappears. He's never central to the plot. And yet again, I think he provides tone, if that makes sense. Yeah, he's, in some ways,
0: he seems like uh, the Mace's mirror image and is in the sense that he is, um, the Fetch is a scoundrel and the Mace is, you know, the, the stolid, supportive. Mm-hmm servant mm-hmm. um you know the mace is pro-government the Fetch is i don't know that we can call him anti-government but he's certainly got his own show <laughs> going in the background state, yeah. i'll give you that <laughs> um but he's also kind of essential because he's you know he's the charmer and i agree with you a 19 year old girl especially one who's been raised in isolation mm-hmm. in the way that kelsey has uh, she would be
1: Flattered by him and Well, she would be vulnerable. Vulnerable, yes. Look. Emotionally speaking, like she's read books about dashing men all her life. You know, she likes them and she's never seen the real thing in the flesh. And I think that would be an incredibly heady experience for a nineteen year old girl. So <laughs> again, I just I remember it's happened to me once or twice when I was a teenager when I was just looked and done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's that sort of situation.
0: Well, especially uh, since she's a very bookish Girl you know she's, she doesn't have um, she doesn't have experience to draw on um, and here he is and he's, uh, he's helped her in a moment of, of uh, need and he does <laughs> you he, know, he shows his face to her where he doesn't normally and
1: sure this there's a certain thing. age at which uh, the rebel is incredibly attractive. You know the the bad boy is incredibly attractive, and I think he's just Kelsey is meeting him at exactly the wrong time because I'm I'm pretty sure ten years later if she met this man she would have just walked away, but she is 19. So. Well, she has smart <laughs> as, as she is, she can't help it. No,
0: of course not. Yeah, she doesn't have the uh, emotional majority for it. Yeah. Um, so she gets to the keep, and part of her journey in this book is to begin to come to terms with who her mother was as queen. And could you tell us, without going into the backstory, but just the things that that you reveal early in this book, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Alyssa and also the regent who is in control when uh, Kelsey goes to the...
1: Sure. I think the way I get around revealing backstory is to tell you what Kelsey finds out about her mother. Right. That's, that's um, what I'm asking you. Right. Certainly not the whole story, but yeah, it is instructive. Um, Kelsey finds out pretty early on that the idealized version of her mother that she's held all her life, as I'm sure most foster children do, is entirely <laughs> is entirely false that her mother her mother may not have been a terrible person, but she was a terrible queen um, not responsible, uh, rather selfish tunnel vision, extremely careless with the responsibility she was given and to kelsey that's about the worst thing like I feel like she'd have an easier time finding out her mother was an axe murderer than finding out what she does, just that her mother was handed all of this power to to rule a kingdom and did not take the responsibility seriously at all.
0: And yet, in a sense, I have the impression that that helps Kelsey. I mean, she obviously doesn't like finding out that her mother is not the person that she's idolized, and yet she herself has to make these decisions and does make them.
1: Well, I think the, the mother definitely serves as a sort of a goad. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to just feel that you yourself are responsible as a queen. It's another to realize that you have to make up for the past mistakes of your family. Um, I think it, whether or not it makes Kelsey a better queen, I'm not sure, but it certainly makes her a, certainly a more motivated and careful queen, and that always over her shoulder is the shadow of what her mother did wrong. And the regent? Oh, the regent. The regent, when Kelsey arrives at the keep, has been ruling the kingdom for about fifteen years or so in her mother's in her mother's absence. Um, her mother's death is a fuzzy fuzzy thing, and no one will quite tell her how that happened. But ever since her mother's brother, the regent, has been in charge, um, and he, I think, the best word to describe him is a wretch. He's just he's not particularly evil. His evil is an incredibly banal type of evil, and yet. Also, again, selfish, lazy, um, sees other people as objects and toys, and (laughs) I I almost, I don't know, for me when I'm reading, I usually find a character like that far more loathsome than an actual villain, because it's just, there's so little care or concern in the region. So I had a great time writing him, (laughs) because it was very fun one of the reasons I keep on, I switch a lot of point of view in this story, and it's because I was dying for the opportunity to explore people that I didn't understand at all and see if I could thereby gain some empathy. And I'm not entirely sure I gained empathy for the regents, but it was at least a really interesting and informative exercise to try and write someone like that who I can barely understand. And if I met him, I'd probably yell at him, you know. So it's, it's a good, it's a good and liberating thing to do as a writer to occasionally write a character that is so far removed from your own mental processes.
0: He is a character one loves to hate. I will definitely say that. Um one of the things that I liked in the book is that you have these little epigraphs at the beginning uh, that are um, like history um excerpts from histories that have about the the Glynn Queen as she's referred to. Mhm. I uh, Did you do a lot of research on the Middle Ages? And I mean, what made you do... There are two actually separate questions. One is how much research you did, but also what made you decide to include these little vignettes at the beginning of each chapter?
1: I am absolutely terrible at research. I did almost none in the sense I did no research on purpose for this book. I do read a lot of medieval history, and just not because I plan it that way, just because the historians I like keep going back to that period. And... So I didn't feel like if I felt I knew, knew nothing about the Middle Ages, I probably would have gone and done some research. But as it was, I just, oh God, the truth is I'm lazy and I hate research. And I felt like I would take the knowledge I already had and do my best. And because this period is not medieval per se, I felt like I had sort of an out if I made a logical error of some kind. It's, essentially, it's laziness, and I should admit that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've forgotten your second question. What was your second question?
0: Well, at the beginning of each chapter, you have this little uh, vignette, a clip from a, a history or a document mm-hmm. or something, and I was—it's it, an interesting tactic, especially since you don't want to give away future plot points. So I was wondering why you put them in. Is it just to create
1: atmosphere? Um, actually, it's truthfully this is where. Um, The book, people keep asking me what books inspired this book, and if I had to pick one, it would be Frank Herbert's Dune. And that is actually, apparently this is a common tactic, little openings at the beginning of chapters, but I've rarely seen it anywhere else that it was written from a future point of view, you know, writing the current story as though it was a historical past. And Frank Herbert is the only one I've ever seen who did that, and I loved it so much because... It told me I was reading a truly good story when at the beginning of every chapter, I learned exactly how things had turned out. You know, there's – by reading these little vignettes, you could find out that your hero hero had triumphed and everything had ended up okay. And even so, I was still fascinated by reading the story at hand, knowing how it ended. And to me, that was so much the sign of a good book because it didn't matter at all that I knew what happened in the end. Um, And so I just – For some, I loved that little device so much for that reason that when I started writing this book, I just thought, Hey, I'll try it too.
0: Yeah, it works. It's it's
1: a great idea. Well, I mean, if, if you, if honestly, you know how a book ends and it ruins the book for you, I would advance the proposition that it's not that great of a book because there was nothing else going for it, but the plot. Right. Anyway, that was my thinking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So this book is doing wonderfully from what I hear. Um, We've got editions all over the world. Uh, Warner Brothers has picked up the film rights. There's talk about Emma Watson of Harry Potter fame um, starring in the, the film. Um, do you ever wake up wondering if this is really your life?
1: Um, yeah, all the time. Um, I don't know. The, the morning after we made the book deal, I had to make my agent send me an email with the dollar amount and the particulars because I honestly knew I was going to wake up the next morning. And believe it, it had been a dream, and believe it or not, I still have that email, and there are still mornings when I wake up because i 've had dreams before in my life where everything turned great, and then I woke up and I was still broke or whatever <laughs> you know so I just I still have those mornings even now, though less and less, fewer and fewer of them all the time, you know, but where I do wake up and it seems so outlandish what 's happened with this book that I do <laughs> I do have to actually go to my computer and go look at at least the most recent email from my agent just to make sure it's true or pick up the book off the bookshelf or something. Um, And so it's, I don't know. I'm not, (laughs) what I love particularly is being able to write for a living. For me, that's the big prize. Um, I had no aspirations to be famous. And indeed, I'm finding that part of it, I'm not famous, like really famous. I'm just saying I'm finding the, the more celebrity part of it to be and the more difficult side. But I love very much being a published author and being able to write for a living. That is the greatest thing I could ever have dreamed of.
0: That's great. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know. I think I, all of us who write would love to be, be able to do it full-time.
1: Yeah, it's it's such a, you know, I I've basically spent most of my adult life in a series of thankless office jobs that were basically of the office space variety. You know, and it's just... It's the most wonderful thing in the world to wake up in the morning and know that all I have to do is spin the story. Do you have a particular routine? Um, I do, actually. Um, It's really strange. I've been a night owl all my life, and then once I suddenly got under deadline, I realized that that wasn't going to play anymore. And so now I wake up usually between 5 and 6 every morning and get up and go out to the coffee shop where I write and do my day's writing there. And that's about it. I don't, I don't have any tricks or anything to get me started or anything. All I do is I go to the coffee shop and I order my chai latte and I sit down and then hopefully it works that day. So it's not much of a routine. In fact, it's a pretty sad one, but it is one that I'm able to do every day, somehow drag myself out of bed at five in the morning. That's impressive it's, enough. <laughs> it's the only way it's ever gonna, I'm ever going to meet my deadline because I have a much harder time writing during the, the part of the day where we think of as work time. It actually has never worked for me at all, and I can't write by myself in a room. That's never worked either, so it has to be a public place. <laughs> it has to be an odd time of day, <laughs> so it's very strange. Do you uh, plot your novels? Um, I do, but unfortunately I am, I am a terrible plotter, and it's compounded by the fact that all of my better ideas come after I begin the story. It's always been that way, so... Say for book two, I started out with a beautiful and perfect outline over 14 chapters, and literally by the time I finished chapter one, the outline had been shredded, Um, and I changed pretty much everything. So I tried to outline and be efficient and responsible, you know, and treat it like a job but the truth is for i'm just not there are there are authors i understand who can plot their entire book and then just basically write off that plot with only a few tweaks and i'm pretty much the opposite it's always a mess and <laughs> you know i just i kind of have to hope it works and then then our editing process is usually complex because of that because i'm so disorganized but Eventually, we kind of get there, <laughs> almost by magic.
0: I'm laughing because I'm exactly the same. I, I didn't plot my first couple of novels at all, and then I just to make it go faster, I would sit down and carefully work out the outline, mm-hmm. so I would have a sense of where I was going. And mm-hmm. by the time I get to page five, it's like, <laughs> well,
1: Do you find that? Do you find that like all the good ideas come? Not during the plotting process. Oh, absolutely. You know, the better ideas always come after I've written that outline, and I can't make that change. So, yeah, I still make an outline just to go through the form of things, you know, because it feels like the responsible thing to do, but I don't, I treat it as an extremely malleable, if not throw awayable document. So,
0: yeah, I do too. I find it useful to have a sense of where I want to end up. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. always know exactly, but
1: that's exactly it. it. The end doesn't change, but everything before it does.
0: Right, exactly. But yeah, as soon as my character starts talking and moving around and stuff like that, it's like forget them. Yeah, they they do not pay any attention to the allies.
1: Exactly. I try to tell people who don't write about that phenomenon because they honestly, even my family, sometimes they believe that I honestly have full control of the characters.
0: Oh yeah, no, people people think you're crazy. It's hard to
1: explain to someone who doesn't write, but you just you have none. You know, they they run themselves. So.
0: They really do, and it sounds nuts, right? I mean, you've got voices talking in your head, right?
1: <laughs> Everything about writing is nuts. It's a wonderful kind of nut, but it's it's not logical all the same.
0: So the reason that we're doing this interview now is because your paperback version of Queen of the Tearling just came out, um, mm-hmm. and your first sequel, The Invasion of the Tearling, is due for release in June. Um, is there anything you can tell us about the new book without giving away spoilers? Um-
1: Sure. Well, in, in the invasion of the Tierling, the Tierling is once again facing invasion by its neighbor, Mortmain. And the other thing, <laughs> there have been a lot of complaints about the first book that I don't reveal enough of the backstory of this world, and that's absolutely true. But the reason I didn't was because I was saving it for book two. So in book two, the reader will actually get a huge chunk of how on earth people ended up in the Tierling and what brought them there. Um, so that's, um, that's maybe a third of the story is actually the history of the tierling told from the point of view of characters who lived long before it. Um, also, mostly we get to see Kelsey, who is a, an incredible idealist and incredibly bright character in book one, become a little bit darker and more sinister. I don't think she turns bad or anything, but she definitely becomes more of a human and less of an idealist in book two.
0: So, you are the first author that I've interviewed who doesn't have a website, uh, who's not on Facebook except indirectly through your publisher <laughs> and so on. Is, is it an accident that you're writing about a world that's abandoned technology?
1: Well, I mean, I love my computer. <laughs> I love it to pieces, and I would die without it. Um, I don't really have a lot of use for social media. Um, I'm just, I'm either, a, I don't think I'm quite a Luddite because there are certain kinds of technology I absolutely adore. But I am old fashioned in the sense that I still like to meet people personally. And when I talk to them, I like to talk to them personally and not by full blast, letting everyone at once know about the events in my life. So I've just never had social media personally at all. I never got into it. And, um, you know, I, I didn't see a great reason to change that even when I got published, just because I still fundamentally like the idea that the well, yeah sorry the relationship is between the reader and the book not the reader and the author but i'm um, you know it that, that doesn't always work very well but <laughs> i always i always kind of wonder why people want to hear from me when they could just decide on their own whether they like the book or not
0: <laughs> so what are you working on now are you working on book 3
1: i am i'm Trying to finish book three, which is due to my publisher in June. We'll see how well that works out. Moving, I've, I've moved recently to another country, and that's made it you know, that's kind of interrupted the writing process significantly. But anyway, I'll finish up book three, and then I hope to start, you know, tiering book four. Oh, there'll be, be a
0: fourth
1: book then. I, I think so. It's in my head anyway, which it may not ever make it to the paper. You know, that, that's an iffy thing, isn't it? But mm-hmm. I hope I hope so.
0: Well, great. Uh, we wish you all success. And thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am CP Leslie, today I've been speaking with Erica Johansson, the author of The Queen of the Tearling. You can find news about her and her books at www.facebook.com slash queenofthetearling as one word. Her publisher also maintains Tumblr and Instagram accounts for the books. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview at blog.cplesley.com. I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. The New Books Network is run by volunteers, but we do have expenses. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider visiting our website at http colon newbooksnetwork.com and making a donation. That's all for today. Please check back soon for another conversation about new books in historical fiction.